This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. How private is your personal data? In the modern connected world, data appears to control everything from our personal lives to how businesses operate and even how governments make big decisions. But while sharing your personal data, whether it's willingly or not, is touted as bringing benefits, is that really true? Or have we sacrificed too much to the extent that our personal privacy is at risk? I'm Danny Palmer. This is ZDNet Security Update. And with me to discuss personal data and privacy is Dr. Carissa Velez, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the Institute for Ethics and AI at the University of Oxford, and author of Privacy is Power, Why and How You Should Take Back Control of Your Data. Thanks for joining me, Carissa. So first of all, how much of our personal data is being tracked, whether we know it or not? Uh, thanks for having me, Danny. Well, a whole lot of our personal data is being tracked. Sometimes when we consent, sometimes without our consent, sometimes we don't know what we're consenting to. So just to give you examples, while you sleep, your phone is sending out data that it has collected throughout the day. And it sends it at night so that you don't notice that your battery is getting drained because most people plug their phones at night. When you wake up, uh, many co corporations know at exactly what time you wake up because you check your phone. And they infer things from that, like, are you sleeping enough? Are you sleeping well enough? Are you, looking, are you searching for things online at night that might suggest that you're anxious or you might be uh, facing a problem? And data about your finances, whether you have a loan or a mortgage of some kind, um, how much you earn, what kind of car you drive, and things about your body, uh, so what kind of diseases you might have. It includes sometimes medical record, but also things like what can we infer about your health given what you buy uh, in the supermarket or given um, how fast you walk or things like that. Uh, things about your sexual orientation, whether you are single or you have a partner, if you are faithful to your partner or not. Um, they know things about what worries you, what excites you, um, things about politics, so whether what kind of political tendencies you have, and also what is your weak point. So when, when are you doubtful? How can people maybe persuade you to change your mind with respect to something? It's a whole lot of data. And sometimes uh, it's data that we have given up. So when you sign up to, for, a, for a social media account, you give up data and you know you are. So you give up your name, sometimes your date of birth, etc. But many times it's data that is inferred from data that is not obviously personal. So for instance, if you go on Facebook and you like pages, uh, very sensitive things can be deduced from that, whether you're a smoker or not, um, and even your IQ level. So when you go ahead and click, say, like on a curly fries page, it's never going to occur to you that actually you're giving data about your IQ, but you are. So how did we get to this point where there's so much data being collected and tracked like this? You mentioned social media as one of the uh, issues here. I mean, that's obviously had a big role in all of this. And plus things like the rise of mobile devices. I mean, it's weird to think how you know, 15 years ago, an iPhone wasn't really a thing. And now it's or an iPhone and other mobile devices, Android, uh, no matter what it is. 
right now, you know, we all have one of those in our pockets. And as you as you've just said, these are tracking so much information about us uh, all the time. So how did it evolve uh, getting to this situation and to, to how we've got to the current state of things now? It was a combination of things. Partly it was enabled by digital tech, just the way computers work. They create data and they need data to communicate with one another. Um, then companies, and here specifically Google had a big role to play, realized that they could use that data that was being produced just kind of naturally by how we design computers to sell that data or to take advantage of it commercially in other ways, like selling access to our attention. And Google was a startup that on the one hand was very successful because it had a great algorithm, people loved it. But on the other hand, after a couple of years of, of, uh, of starting, it still didn't have a way of funding itself. And investors were getting impatient and Google was kind of in a desperate situation. And even though the founders of Google had um, in 1998 written a paper on how criticizing or, or, or calling to attention the fact that when search engines use ads, their loyalty changes. Suddenly the users are not the clients anymore. And they express the view that that's not ideal. So even though they seem to be against having that kind of business model, they were kind of out of ideas and they went for ads and not only any kind of ads, but ads that were personalized. So they realized that they could use all the data that was created um, through users interacting with their search engine to target ads. And then, um, so the Federal Trade Commission in the United States recommended to Congress that it regulate privacy, much along the lines of the GDPR now. So things like, you know, people should know what kind of data is being collected on them. They should have the possibility of correcting that data if it's wrong, asking for it to be deleted, etc. And just as Congress was thinking about this, 9-11 happened. And then all concerns for privacy got um, kind of forgotten about and security came first. And I think the United States had good intentions. So Intelligence agencies wanted to do anything and everything possible to make sure 9-11 or something like that couldn't happen ever again. And they figured, you know, there's so much data, we can literally make a copy of that data that all the companies are creating, you know, telecom companies, Yahoo, Google, all, all of these um, tech, big tech companies, and use it for safety. Now, it, it turns out that, unfortunately, big data is very good at detecting patterns within troves of data, so it's very good easy to know what, what you're thinking about buying because billions of people are buying things every single day. But it's not good for tracking terrorism because terrorism is always going to be a very rare event. And so in a sense, it's kind of a shame because we gave up our privacy for two things that have overpromised and underdelivered. We, we got promised safety and we, and we didn't really get it. On top of it, it turns out that having so much personal data sloshing around is a real threat to national security. So in some ways, we are less safe because we have less privacy. And we gave up our privacy for personalized ads, which it turns out can be misused in all sorts of ways, particularly with uh, personalized propaganda. And also, whatever advantages we get from personalized ads, we can get them in other non-invasive ways. So I don't like you know, looking at ads that are not interesting to me. But you don't need to know everything about me, including where I live, with whom, my sexual orientation and my, my political tendencies to show me the kind of product I want to see. So if I search online for, say, I don't know, running shoes, because that's what I'm looking for, then it's fine to show me ads for running shoes. But you don't have to have all this trove of personal data. So when it comes to this personal data, I mean, just how much of it about us 
is being collected and how do the organizations which are collecting it analyze it and store it for for the future because as you've said it, there's so much information about us out there that they, they are taking note of uh, they can basically build a picture of who we are from that yeah they have a picture of who we are where we hurt many times when you see the categories that companies like data brokers have so data brokers are companies that want to collect data on every single user online and then they sell that data to whoever wants to buy it which is usually insurance companies, banks, some governments, and other companies um, of various sorts, including marketing companies. And if you see the categories in which people get placed, you kind of get a feel for what they're going for. And categories include like things that don't seem so innocuous, like you know people who are between 23 and 45 or whatever it is in this area. But there are categories that are very problematic, and those include people suffering from premature ejaculation, people um, who have been the victims of rape, uh, people who have HIV, people who have lost a child. So these are very sensitive topics and, and data brokers and, and the companies that buy this data know exactly where we hurt the most. And that makes us pretty vulnerable to them. There's also one of the problems in this area is that it's very opaque, particularly in a place like the United States in which in many states there isn't enough regulation. Um, you, you have no idea how much data is out there about you. And especially you don't know what kind of inferences are made. So even, even in, in, in Europe, say when you ask a big company like Amazon for your data, you will, you will get that data. And I mean, it, it'll spook you because you'll get a sense of like how much of it th there is. And it's incredible, in, including like the things that you highlight on your Kindle and obviously what you buy, what you search for, all kinds of things. But we don't get the inferences. So they give us the raw data, but we don't know what they're doing with that data. And that means there's a huge asymmetry of knowledge in which they know a lot about us, we know very little about them, and that leads to an asymmetry of power. So part of what I propose in the book is that we need to redress that asymmetry, partly by learning a lot more about them and making sure they know a lot less about us. So what should we know about them in order to help us understand what is going on here? You mentioned data brokers, which is something that, you know, people you know, within tech might know a lot about, but your you know, person on the street will, will, might know nothing about these. Uh, we've had you no know, big uh, news stories like the you know, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica stories, which sort of shed some of this to light. But I imagine still now a lot of people won't have any idea what this is or why they, they, they're giving up data to uh, certain websites and services might be risky when there's so much information that can just be inferred in ways which can potentially uh, be damaging as, 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 you've, uh, as you've mentioned. Yeah, so one of the things I think we should know and that we don't know is that the sensitive inferences that are being made about us. We, we have a right to know um, whether you know, some company is speculating on us and kind of betting uh, for or, or against us. And we should know whenever there's an algorithm dealing with our file and making decisions about it, it seems to me that we should know about that. And if we knew better, I think people would be less complacent about um, consenting to data. So even in the case of, say, Cambridge Analytica, you brought up, so 270,000 people consented to give their data to Cambridge Analytica. And I haven't read the consent notice, but I'm pretty sure it, it didn't say, we will we use your data to try to sway elections. Um, so in many ways, we, even when we get a privacy policy, they're so ambiguous and so vague that it means nothing. 
for a company to say that, oh yeah, we'll share your data to improve our services, that, that means nothing. Who are you going to share it with? For how long? What services are, are those? Are they going to hurt me in some way? And there are all kinds of questions that never get answered. So part of, part of it is, we, in general, we have to have a better sense of how these companies work and what they're doing with data, what are their practices. And we know that thanks to investigative journalists and whistleblowers, these, these are not, this is not information that the companies have given us. When companies like Google started collecting data, they didn't ask anyone, they didn't explain, they just went for it. And part of it is we need to know the specifics. We need to be uh, to have access to our data in much easier ways and to have access to things like the kind of inferences that are being made on us and the kind of algorithms that are that are making decisions about our lives. With all this data being collected, I mean, the power seems to lie with these big organizations. And I, I expect, is that something that they could potentially abuse? I mean, what does that mean for uh, privacy for us on a personal level and I guess for all of us at a societal level, so you've seen the impact that algorithms and uh, data can have on uh, events in the world. And as more and more things and people become connected, there's just going to be more and more data for them to collect and take advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. They can abuse it and they abuse it all the time. So what it means for us, even, even for somebody who says, well, I don't care about my privacy. I'm not very shy. I'm not a criminal. I have nothing to hide. Well, they should care because companies can use it to discriminate against you. So for instance, when you apply for a job, um, let's say that there's another candidate that is equally um, good as you are, but in your file, there's some information about maybe you have genes that are not the best, or maybe there is an incipient disease that you maybe you, you don't even know about it. And if other things are equal, they're gonna choose the other candidate and they're gonna tell you some excuse, right? Like the other candidate was better suited for our purposes and you'll never know that you got discriminated against uh, on, in, in an unlawful way because it's so hard to police this. So as long as companies have that data, of course they'll misuse it. You know, human beings are very fallible and um, we can't just rely on good faith. We have to make sure that these companies don't have that data to make sure that they're not abusing it. So on top of uh, being discriminated against, and that includes not only jobs, but for instance, the kind of opportunities that you see more and more and during the pandemic especially, but in general, we access reality through our screens. And it seems like our screen is a window to the world, but in fact, it's just a window to who these companies think you are. It's kind of a reflection, but it's not like a trustworthy mirror because it mirrors the image that other people have of you. So for instance, um, in a study, it was shown that um, in many cases, men get shown ads for higher paying jobs. And in some cases, there might be a perverse reason behind that. You know, companies could be sexist. In other cases, it's more um, uh, an effect that people didn't see coming. So for instance, when companies use historical data to hire someone new, if they have hired too many men in the past, because that was our culture, culture, sorry. If they have hired too many men in the past, they might hire another, you know, more men in the future. Um, not because they want to be sexist, because they, they're just dealing with historical data. In other cases, it's even more obscure than that. So it turns out that um, women typically buy more than men. And so it's more expensive to show them ads. So a company wanting to save some money and show ads that are very cheap will end up showing ads to men. And that might create uh, problems. So you, you can be discriminated against in many ways. You can be uh, you can suffer 
different crimes, uh, prime among them identity theft. This is a crime that is going up exponentially because more people are using tech all the time. And that means that somebody can use your identity to commit crimes in your name. And then you have to go around trying to prove your innocence, which is remarkably dif difficult to do. And you can spend thousands of dollars in, in lawyers and many, many days and months in court. And it can be a real nightmare. Even simple cases can make your life really difficult. Because if somebody say, says, imagine, takes your name and takes out a phone contract and then doesn't pay back, that can be enough to ruin your credit score. Um, you should care about your privacy also because even if, let's say you're okay, let's say you have a house, you have a stable job, you're never going to you know, ask for another job or a mortgage or anything like that, um, you still presumably have friends and family and at least other citizens. And one of the things that I defend in my book is that privacy is as collective as it is personal. It's not only about you. So whenever you share information about yourself, you're also exposing others who might get harmed. So if you share your genetic data, you're, you're sharing the genetic data of your siblings, your parents, your kids, your cousins, and very distant kin whom you may, maybe will never hear about, but who can get denied uh, insurance or who can even get deported, this has already happened. Um, because of you know you sharing that genetic data, and more generally as a, as a society, we should care about privacy because privacy protects us from abuses of power, both as individual and as, as a collective. And in particular, the loss of privacy is leading to an erosion of equality. You and I are not being treated as equal citizens; we are being treated on the basis of our data. So depending on what kind of laptop you have and what kind of purchasing power you have and what kind of gender you have and so on, you will see different opportunities, you will pay for different prices. And that means that we're not treated as equals anymore. And furthermore, there's these two big concerns. One is a concern for democracy. It's not only that personal data is being used to try to sway elections, which is happening all the time. Cambridge Analytica is not here anymore, but there are about three, at least 300 companies that do something like that, that do personal, um, that, that do political campaigns with personal data. And it, personal data is also being used to pit citizens against one another. So if you know you tend to be paranoid and you tend to you know, fear certain kinds of things, they might expose you to really negative content that's going to make you distrust other citizens. There are many ways to cash it out, but one example is a couple of years ago, the New York Times published a piece with a couple of reporters that described themselves as not too tech savvy. And they had access to um, a database that held the location data of 12 million people in the United States. And this is data that anyone could buy because it's from a data broker. And they managed to find the president of the United States through triangulating his schedule to a phone that was always around that turned out to be of one of his secret service agents. And if the president of a country is not safe, the whole country is unsafe. And they also managed to identify important lawyers, important people in the military, important people um, in public officials. And these people were going to places that were very sensitive. In some cases, abortion clinics, in some cases, a psychiatrist's office. And it's very easy for, the, for very important people to get extorted. So there are all kinds of threats that come with losses of privacy that, are, that, that go well, way beyond the concerns of a particular individual. That's an interesting point there you make about the security element of this because there's the, it goes in hand in hand with the privacy element because uh, as we've seen so much over recent years when there's data involved 
there's people out there who will be trying to steal it, access it. And if that data is being stolen and it's, it contains such personal information about yourself and information you might not know is being stored uh, and shared, that could have uh, devastating consequences for uh, individuals, their families, their friends, depending on the context of who is ultimately looking for that data. Yeah, exactly. And so data has a very explosive combination, personal data in particular. On the one hand, it's extremely cheap. So you can buy somebody's file for like a few dollars. On the other hand, it's extremely valuable because if you have billions of it, you can really become very, very rich. And in the third place, it's very dangerous because it's very sensitive and it's easy to misuse it. So that combination of it being cheap, but valuable and dangerous really is a terrible combination. And um, yeah, like you say, it, it, it could be devastating. So just imagine being in a dictatorship, like ones that we've seen in the past, and dictators having all that data, it would be really, really difficult to fight it. So we are building an architecture of surveillance that could really sustain a dictatorial regime. And I worry a lot about that because democracy is fragile and we, we have to reinvent it and defend it every single day. And an architecture of surveillance isn't going to support it very well. So what can individuals who are worried about this do in order to help uh, improve their, their privacy uh, in, in society with how much data is being used and exchanged right now? Is, is, it, has the Pandora's box been opened and it's impossible to put that back in? Or is there a way to counter this before uh, things get towards, as you, as you describe it, some sort of surveillance state? There are many ways to counter it. And um, so on the, there's no, no reason to lose hope. First, data can be deleted. And there has been a news uh, a couple of days ago that Europol, for instance, is being asked to delete a whole lot of data because they had it unlawfully. Uh, secondly, much of the world hasn't been digitized. If you think about it, many of our conversations are still live. Um, most people read in paper. M most purchases are done physically. Um, if you think about our, our indoor spaces, much of it hasn't been digitized. So really, the vast majority of the world is not yet digitized. And that gives us a big opportunity, even though the window of opportunity is closing quite uh, quickly. And then third, the most valuable data is the data that you're creating right now, because personal data expires really quickly. Your tastes change, you move houses, you change partners, you cut your hair, all kinds of things change, such that um, the most valuable personal data will always be the most recent. And so we always have an opportunity to start now. Now is a very, very good time to start. And it's in a way, it's never late. I mean, it can be too late if we have a dictatorial regime. But at, at present, it's never late because every, every data point that you protect can save you from a, a case of identity theft or discrimination or extortion. Now, there's a lot you can do as individuals. I don't want to give the impression that this should be on the shoulders of individuals. First, because I think that's unfair. Governments should take care of this. Um, second, because you're not going to be perfect. You're going, you know, many times we are forced to work, to have um, education opportunities and so on, to use platforms that we don't trust. Um, but, and also because we need regulation. There's, there's no way around it. Even if individuals did everything perfect, we would still need to change the rules of the game. However, that said, individuals have a big role to play because the more we resist the data economy, the more we give first tools to policymakers to make the right rule, rules, 
and reasons to do them to make the right rules and also we give an incentive to companies to take privacy seriously and to sell it as a as a competitive advantage to know that um, that we care about it and even if just five to ten percent of the population resists the data economy that's enough to change the culture we don't need to be perfect and it, we don't need like 90 percent of the population to buy in so you have a really important role to play as an individual and we, we, we really have a lot more power than we realize because companies like Facebook, they don't sell anything except personal data. Without it, they're nothing. And that's partly why they lobby so hard and they spend so much money uh, convincing people about their narrative because they know they, they know they are fragile. So the things you can do is make sure that your laptop and phone are not produced by a company that sells or trades in personal data or exploits personal data because they always will have a conflict of interest. Um, use privacy-friendly devices and apps and so on. So instead of using Google search, I recommend DocDocGo. It's very good and it doesn't collect your data. Instead of using WhatsApp, use Signal. Instead of using um, Gmail, use ProtonMail. And in general, there's a website called uh, privacytools.io, I think it is, uh, in which you can find alternatives for whatever product you want to use. So you don't have to sacrifice yourself. You don't have to like go without tech. It doesn't have to be anything radical, anything exaggerated. It doesn't take that much of an effort once you get into it. Um, and these products are very good. Also protect people, other people's privacy. So don't retweet or forward messages that clearly violate somebody's privacy. Don't share, overshare about other people. Don't um, take pictures of people and upload them without asking for their consent. Contact your political representatives, tell them that you're worried about privacy, ask them what, what they're doing to, to fix it. And just in general, try to do your best. So one thing I recommend is culture is very important. And we have, in, in the past few years, we have grown accustomed to a culture of exposure in which people are, are asked to overshare and share more than they're comfortable with all the time. And one way to kind of change that back that I think is worth it is, you know, when there's no pandemic and uh, we can go back to, to seeing each other in person, it's really nice to have spaces. And even in the family home, it's very nice to have spaces free of tech. So, you know, if you really want to have an intimate time, leave the phones in another room. If you really want to have a, a, a juicy and kind of uh, productive and frank debate, say with your students, don't record the lecture, don't have cameras, don't have microphones. I think we need to, um, kind of really respect the, the value of, of intimacy and what intimacy can bring us. Because when you're in spaces in which anything and everything you do can always be public, it's just natural to be less open, less honest, less frank, less, less relaxed as well. Well, there's certainly a lot to think about there and a lot of great advice too. Uh, thanks for joining me on ZDNet Security Update. Uh, uh, and for more information on how to keep yourself secure, uh, I guess people can uh, buy your book. And can you remind us uh, what that's called, please? Yeah, it's called Privacy is Power. And the hardback is out and the paperback is going to be out uh, this January. So I, I, I hope you, you enjoy the read. Well, well, thanks again for your time today, Chris. It's very much appreciated. And for more information on how to keep yourself safe uh, online, be sure to uh, subscribe to the ZDNet YouTube channel. Of course, there's plenty of news articles and features on ZDNet.com. Thanks for watching.